Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy crew, you are listening to episode 190 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring legendary wallaby George Gregan. 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 Gregan pops it out in front. No one can pick it up. It's a try to Gregan. Georgie Gregan. Oh, what a try. George, small, powerful, distributing the ball in a very calm fashion. Shiny, bald head, always seemingly in control. George, George is iconic. He is the most capped wallaby of all time. At a time when the wallabies were box office, they were a must-watch team. World Cup, splitters like classics. George, he was central to it all. So you search and try to find But you don't know where to go So many thoughts flood to your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be? So much more than me, see I Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by George, very clever chap. George currently lives in London where he is chairman and director of FSU, a global operation working in the health and fitness space from PTP. Based around resistance bands, Bahi, which has you covered with Pilates gear and Medifit in the strength and recovery space, check out any of their websites and you will be on the path to be in as good a shape as George, and trust me, that is very good shape. Thanks to Marty Cambridge from the Wallabies for making this episode happen. Go the Wallabies in the World Cup, get around them. Alrighty, time to get into it. Enjoy the story of George Musarua Gregan, elite at life. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion I well, this man, the most capped wallaby of all time, Bledisloe Cup winner, World Cup winner, unbelievable in Canberra with the Brumbies, uh, restaurateur, businessman, charity. It just got, uh, I could take an hour and a half just getting through his achievements, but it's great to see him. He's coming in from London, George Gregan. Mate, welcome to Howie Games. How are you, Georgie? Really well, Howie. Good to be on the show, mate. Um, this will come out just prior to the World Cup, which I'm tremendously looking forward to. I think it starts on September 8. But as we are recording this, George, you're in London. Mm. Give me a snapshot of what you're up to. I actually didn't know you were in London. You're, you're there full-time, Georgie? Yeah, been here since June last year, sort of um, looking at growing. So we've got a health and fitness business. We set that up about 12 years ago. Um, whilst I was at the end of my career, I started um, as an ambassador there, but came on uh, as an owner now. Um, and that's it's in, you'll see that in, in Rebel, you'll see probably two of our brands in Rebel stores, like it's PTP, which is a functional fitness brand, resistance bands, tubes, rollers, etc. And then we've got like a yoga brand called Bahe, which is more around huh. focused around yoga and Pilates. And so that's going to have a little bit of um, apparel coming into it. So yeah, we've sort of grown that over time, and it, and it's evolved organically. And it's it's you know, about thirty countries, and the UK is one where we feel there's a great opportunity to sort of really establish a strong presence, and it's also a chance to go into Europe. So being able over here full time, it makes a lot of sense. And how big a part 
of your life still is health and fitness. Like I look at you on Zoom, you still look like you got muscles on your muscles. You got the same haircut you had when you played for the Wallies. To be fair, you only look about thirty-five, so you must be doing something. Well, I've got good genes, mum and dad. I can thank them for it. But also habit. I think health, fitness, well, it's just been my life. To be fair, I think when we played, um, you obviously training and preparing. That was something that was an extension of what I was actually studying at university. So I went through university in Canberra, studied um, physical education but the first two years of that was heavily based on sports science human movement so I really love that at the same time I was going through the AIS on a rugby scholarship so I was applying a lot of my learnings to what I was doing in life and then you fast forward to when you're finishing in your career which is 2011 um, professional rugby I, I just living what I've always done and it's been really nice to pass it on and create a create a business about it but when I talk about it I don't actually think of it as a business it's just a, a way of life and I think to be to be totally honest the pandemic, which seems so weird a few years ago, that strange blip in our lives, I think it reinforced to everyone how, how important health is. Like, it's still a sad cliche, but it's health is wealth. Like, you look after yourself. And um, being, in a, being in an industry and being in a, in a business which does that, I think is really rewarding and it's just nice to talk about. And, yeah, it's not, it's not hard to live, mate. <laughs> if you looked around, I'm not going to Zoom you and show me, but pretty much everywhere I sort of live, there's always a lot of our equipment, which I live and breathe well, pretty much on a daily basis. I don't go building myself all the time. You've got to train smart, but, no, I, I'm a big believer in it. Talking about that training, you know, I like to try and look after myself and lift the three kilo weights in the gym, George. I do my best, or the wet towels when I'm in there. But I, like, I find days when I spring out of bed and I'm good to go for a run or the gym or a surf. It's it's not even a thought. It's just do it yeah. and it's fun. How how do you do it on the days when you wake up and you think, oh, I don't feel like it today? Those days when you don't want to train now at your age and stage in life. So sometimes training to me is just mobility. I might be having a roll. I might be doing like a light yoga slash Pilates type movement just to get some mobility. I think that's really important. Just, we're meant to move. We were designed to move. I think I don't want to sound like a, <laughs> a um, anthropologist, but like we started on four legs and we moved to two legs so we could survive so we didn't get eaten by the lions in the savannah grass. So we're pretty smart and intelligent <laughs> and, and we realised we had to keep moving. We had to move smart, otherwise you, you, you don't survive. So I think that that's part of us it's and some days you, you you don't feel like doing a pp you don't feel like going for a run like i don't run much anymore but I, I like to do some sort of movement bit of play getting on a bike like being around here london for example hop on the boris bikes and cycle from place to place it's just a bit of mobility it's a bit of a fun way to get around and i don't think of it as exercise but it's movement and i think that's important so if you if you've got that in the back of your mind and some people really are targeted and focused on on you know they're achieving their goals on a daily basis but if you are feeling not so great one morning just just dial it back and uh, there's nothing wrong with um not lifting a dumbbell and doing something and making a, a crazy sweat just look after yourself listen to your body really really important but keep moving you got to keep moving i'm pumped that you get to work in health and fitness because you can hear that you're so passionate about it i uh, it, it i haven't quite got the details on my head Griggs, but i haven't had the pleasure of working on rugby a great deal but in the early days at Channel 7, they had the rugby and myself and a cameraman called Laz Telecki, and I reckon it was before the 2003 World Cup in Australia, you guys went on a training camp somewhere out the back in, I don't know, in Queensland and we rolled up there and there was just some 
enormous men doing some crazy physical things as well as the abseiling. I think we slept in the car. You yeah. blokes were intense from memory. Do you remember yes. that? We did a couple. We did one, uh, we're in Caloundra, that was, but that was 99, around that 2003. We did some stuff where we went to... Um, Runaway Bay. We've been doing that with Eddie and, and with Kef. We did we'd stay there, and we also did one, which was probably 2007, where we went and did like an SAS. What the cricketers did. I think after, that was it. I think that was it. That was it. Yeah, yeah. we went up that way. And because yeah, I remember thinking, <laughs> I remember thinking, oh wow, these poor blokes—they're not going to get much food. They're working hard, and they're in those tents that don't look that comfy. And then we yeah. sort of—I think it was might have been. Juro Singh might have been the media manager yeah. at the time, and I said, That's "So, it. are we in tents?" He's like, "Oh no, we, we don't have accommodation for you blokes." So I think we're in the back of the station wagon. So you yeah. might have had it better off than me, to be fair. Exactly, hundred <laughs> percent. But I, that, that was probably two thousand and seven. Yeah, and you, we did some abseiling, and we worked with it was the same same I think camp which the Aussie cricketers did after they lost the two thousand and five Ashes. Oh, there's a great story with the late Shane Warne, where they like they yeah. let off some firecrackers or whatever in the middle of the night just as a survey, and he said. <laughs> And after about a day or two, he'd had enough warning. And he said, you know what? I'm not good. I'm not strong enough. I'm not tough enough to do this. But if you need me to bowl 40 overs on the last day to win a test match, I'm your man. <laughs> and, and fast forward about 12 months or nine months, he did that at Adelaide. Yeah. He won them the unwinnable yeah. test match by doing exactly that. So, yeah, they're, they're good team building experiences, but they're not for everyone. <laughs> I, I, I reckon Lottie Takiri might have been involved. And, yep. and I don't think I'd seen a bigger man and a man with a more effective performance at the dinner table than Lottie Takiri. Yeah. I just remember being blown away by the calorie intake of the big man. Yeah, it's funny at those times. You look at it, like he was never small. I saw LT, oh, it must have been a bit over a year ago, and, and Wendell and, and and Chris Lath. And we just had a big back three. Like they were all over 100 kilos and they ran like the wind. But Lottie, yeah. particularly Lottie, was some specimen. Like, yeah, he was super strong, incredibly powerful and athletic. Um, didn't like the long distance. Didn't was an endurance athlete. They were definitely power and fast switch athletes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we worked hard, and you sort of I think when you're training at that level, the hardest thing is keeping up your calorie intake and getting obviously the right fuel. But you got to keep it up because you're working pretty damn hard. Yeah, I've got fond memories of that trip. So let's let's strip it back. You're in London now. Um, you're originally from Zambia, from Lusaka, which I've got. Distant memories of being in Lusaka on the way to a chimpanzee orphanage, but but you weren't there long. But you, you tell me about yeah. your family background, mate. Yeah, mum's from Zim. Uh, mum's family still still a number of mum's family in Zim, um, outside of Harare, uh, Bulawayo, Matari, which is a um, beautiful oh. part of the world. Um, mm. And then so we were born all three of us. I'm the youngest of three in Zambia. Mum and dad actually met in London. Got married in Kent. Uh, mum was nursing, dad was studying um, pharmaceutical. And then they decided to move to Zambia. Dad had an op- opportunity to work um, for, a, for a pharmaceutical company. I think it was Pfizer. And uh, and then they were living on a farm. Dad was working there, raised a family. Then this bit of, it was a bit unsettled. I can't remember this because I was really young. So they said, well, hang on, this is a little bit bit sketchy. Let's move to Australia. Let's, let's, let's drop some roots there. So I moved back to Australia. Um, I think the first six months was around Miranda, so I was in the Shire with my auntie and, and family on Dad's side, and then moved to Canberra. Seventy six, Canberra was the Canberra was the place, mate. Built a home. They're still in the same home. Um, 
it's got a beautiful outlook. It looks very much like where Mum's Village is in Africa, to be fair. So I can see why they're not going to move. Um, but, it's, but it was a, to be, I wouldn't have had it any other way actually growing up. I was a bit of a sporting nut, loved my cricket, loved all sports, played a bit of league, played a bit of union. And if you yeah, if you go to Canberra, there's, there's no shortage of fields, there's no shortage of training facilities. So and really bike friendly. Yeah, if you're a kid loving sport, it's probably the, like a, a great environment. The only, another nursery would be sort of Wagga Wagga, like a big country town, and Canberra is like a big country town. Yeah. But um, you sort of, yeah, yeah, you have all the facilities there. And then, as I said, I was lucky enough to be living in Canberra, going to university there, and had an AIS rugby scholarship. So I got the best of both worlds. I had everything in my, literally at my doorstep. So now that was a big part of um, my upbringing. Then moved to Sydney for about 96 up until just recently. Yeah, and so always played for the Brumbies during Super Rugby. So the Canberra's been a big, big part of my life. Before we get to rugby, I don't ask you this because you were born in Africa, but I've no doubt you've gone back and visited relatives and people there. And it's a weird thing. I've been privileged enough to just travel through the continent various times and you you read those sort of Wilbur Smith books that says something about Africa and the smell of the air and the thorn trees and you think, oh, yeah, but then when you get there, there's a a real connection to the place. Do do you feel a a connection to Africa when when you're off in South Africa or Zim or wherever you may be? Uh, Africa's amazing. It gets into you. Mind you, I'd say the same if you ever go to Japan. Once you've gone to Japan and you've experienced it, you... there's a part of you which says, no, I'll, I'll be coming back here a lot in my life. Yeah. But, yeah, there's obviously the connection for me. Like, when we went to Zambia, I took the family back. We, we went back in 2012 mm. through South Africa. We had we finished up at Kruger, but we went to the lower Zambezi, obviously Zambia, and it was just amazing. We did some incredible game game safaris. Stayed at two, like, glant, like, it was amazing. But you literally, you wake up in the morning and there's, like, there's elephants out the back. <laughs> you're literally shaking the potato bush trees in front of you. You've got we we jumped out of um, we jumped into our, our outdoor jeep, and then within two minutes we see a leopard. That's actually my screensaver on my on my computer, which you rarely see. Like we just see everything, and then you, you, there, there's a smell, and there's just this sense of okay, this is an amazing place. There's there's hippos and the like. It's just it, it's really a, a pretty special place. Not that Australia doesn't have its fair share of incredible, um, spectacular scenery, both with animals and also with the flora. But yeah, Africa is pretty amazing, and you do feel a connection there. But um, I also, you know, I, I find once people have gone there and experienced like a sundown, if you go on, if you've been to Africa, be it South Africa or anywhere, and you're going on like one of those safaris and you, you get up first thing in the morning, so it's a, before sunrise and then, but the sunset, the sundowner, the sunset in Africa, yeah, that's there's pretty special. Yeah, it's, it's something to remember. I laugh when you say sundown because we were there just prior to COVID. So my, my young boat was probably eight and we'd be cruising in the Jeep. We'd get to about quarter past five and he, he'd always want to sit up the front with the safari guy and he'd be like, I reckon it's time for a sundown. Yeah. <laughs> you're only eight. But, but but I loved seeing it through their eyes. What was it? You know, you're, you're a father yeah. of three. What True. was it like seeing that through your children's eyes? Yeah, it was amazing. We accrued, what, exactly like you are saying with your boy, our youngest Jazz, she was like, they all had a chance to sit up the front now and now. And so they just sat in the spotting chair and they looked at it and we, they knew. Like, it's funny, you didn't have to, I, like your experience at that age, this is going back 2012, so they're obviously a bit more grown up now. <laughs> they're young adults. But it was like, you, there's a safari voice, like, don't talk loud. Don't be like just, uh, but you feel it. They know all of a sudden the pride of lions are walking in front of you or you look up and there's a, a leopard or there's, there's, there's a whole heap of elephants, there's buffalo, there's all these things and you, and you, you just naturally pause. 
And so they got it straight away and they were amazed. But um, they, they were really keen to, to try and find whatever. They, they were, like when they're in that spotting chair, they wanted to be the spotter. They were, they were scanning everything, <laughs> trying to learn all the tips from Brown. But, yeah, feeling feeling that experience of uh, being in the lower Zambezi is pretty special. And we, we went on the water as well and, you know, went tiger fishing. Like, like if I can catch a fish, anyone can catch a fish. So everyone was reeling in the fish and it was really good. It's quite competitive. But I think our youngest, Jazz, she got the first one. Charlie, the daughter, my middle daughter, she got the second. My son got the last one. He was pretty upset because he's pretty competitive. But it was all right, mate. As the guide said, there's plenty more There's plenty more fish, plenty more tiger fish in the Zambezi, Maxi. So, yeah, it's pretty special time. George, I'm thinking about at some stage in recent times firing up a travel podcast. And if I do, you're the first man I'm ringing when I start talking about Africa. Now, so, so you're in Canberra. It's the late 70s. It's the swinging Canberra, apparently, from what you're telling me. It's, it's going off. When does rugby first come across your desk as a young fella? And who'd you first play for? And to what, of age, yeah. what type of age? Yeah, rugby came into my life in 1983. So that's when I went to St Edmunds College. Up until then, um, gone to the local primary school down the road and played a bit of rugby league. Like it was under nines, um, I played rugby league. So you, the local team is called the Tugman on Buffalo. So I went down there and learnt the game, which was great. But then when I went to St Edmunds in year five, because my, my brother was there, my sister went across the road to a girls' school, but it was literally across the road. They had Aussie rules, hockey, soccer, and rugby. No rugby league, and it was a rugby school. Um, now Ricky Stewart, they played rugby league. They had great careers. He's a great coach now still. Dave Ferner, they went to my school and had and played both codes. Um, uh, in their in their future lives, but at that stage they only played rugby. And they were great rugby players. Played Australian schoolboys. Ricky went on to be a Wallaby. Dave Ferner went on to twenty ones, and he went to the Canberra Raiders and had the career that he had. But no, it was a rugby union school, a very proud rugby union school, and it was like no. You know, you play. There's two extra players on the field, and you'll probably play five eight. So, which is similar to what a halfback plays um, in rugby league, first off the ball. But then um, I didn't. <laughs> I was waiting for my growth spurt for many, many years, still waiting for it. And um, I got to that under 14s, and then I switched to halfback, which would be like playing dummy half in rugby league. So. It was pretty close, so you're still touching the ball a lot. So that was that was the uh, the beginning end of my love of and, and just joy of playing rugby, going to the St Evans College, and I had some great coaches. I still remember my first coach, my under-10s coach then was Jack Maguire, and um, the first 15 coach or assistant coach was a guy called John Maxwell. He, Maxie would... Um, we got him, Mr. Maxwell. He'd come in, and he was the head coach of the Queen Bee and Whites, the senior men's team. We had a, a guy called David Campese. He was a pretty handy player, um, and they won. They won the local competition. But he made sure that one of the first grade players would come and coach the, the kids at St. Edmunds. So we had Jack Maguire, who's the five eight of that championship winning sort of first grade team he was my coach and just it doesn't matter if it's cricket basketball whatever sport hockey rugby union he just taught the, the basics the fundamentals catch pass particularly my position is fly off being able to see the field bit of game management strategy when to kick not to kick like he just taught you the game at 10 and I was learning off a first grade winning championship winning 10 who was just a lovely man and just really cared for his kids and made a lot of fun lots of games and stage was he that you just remember those moments and um so it's a pretty pretty good experience going into into that environment and having those people um supporting you from a from a coaching slash teaching role so at what age do you start to think 
maybe I could do this. I, obviously, it was a very different game. Looking back at some of your early Wallabies games, there's there's really no sponsors on the shirt. That's the first thing that hit me. So it was a very different time to now. But at what age and stage did you start to think, oh, maybe I could play rugby for a job? And were you that kid that was, oh, no, we're playing George Gregan this week, he's unbelievable, or, or did you just develop into your work or were you a, a young star? No, I wouldn't say I was a young star. I, was, I played differently. I was small, so I played a bit differently. So, like, there came a point under 10s to 12s, probably under 14s onwards. So, from under 16s, I made I made rep teams. I wouldn't start because I was smaller. So, like, guys are maturing. I said I waited a while for my growth spurt. I was, a, I was a little bit late on my development, adolescence type thing. So, I was always one of the smaller players. So, when, once it gets to that point, and, you know, it's adolescence, people going through puberty, there's just different shapes and shapes and sizes. I still played away, which is skillful and everything, but, you, you know, if it's a physical game, um, at that under-16s, they're focusing on playing that way, then I, I, I was in a squad but not, not starting. But I was still playing in the squad, still part of a rep team, which was awesome. If you got a chance to get out and play, it was awesome. Um, but in saying that, for my for my school teams, yeah, I'll, I'll be captaining, I'll be leading, and we won. We probably won every even year. We lost finals every year. It's quite quite bizarre how it worked, but that's kind of how it played out. But I loved the sport. I loved at that stage was cricket. Did you? Like I love cricket. I love golf as well. And I was playing rep teams. I probably thought I was a better chance of being a cricketer than a rugby player. And when I got to once, because well, you're not you're not judged so much upon your size and your weight in cricket. If you're a batsman, you got to make runs. If you're a bowler, you get wickets if you can field. So it's all shapes and sizes, isn't it? And what were you? Were you, were you a batter, bowler? I want to hear about your cricket career. No, it's short. <laughs> it's a short career. I played. I played. Um, I played. I played as a batsman and um, played played lots of junior rep cricket, school cricket, and junior cricket against like the likes of Shane Shane Lee. Shane O was still great mates. He was at my fiftieth. He was just good. <laughs> he went to sleep early, so he couldn't re- tell them about all those junior cricket stories. <laughs> um, played played a lot against um, punter Ricky under seventeens, under nineteens. Played against Gilly when he was at the AS. All those guys, yeah, played against them. But then when you play against them, you see, okay, those guys are going to probably become great cricketers for Australia and surprise, surprise, <laughs> they did. Um, I always thought, like, one story I'll say about Gilchrist, we played him, I was in the ACT senior team, we were playing against the under-19, so Rod Marsh would take the, the AIS Academy round, playing four-day ga- four games, and those that's where they learned to play what's now called basketball, but I'll call it Rod Marsh ball, that's 350 in a day. <laughs> that's just how they played. It was amazing. And Gilly came out... Um, just before T blocked a, blocked two balls, one of them, and playing, you know, Monica Oval, he pushed one into the covers, and I was a cover, and I, I feel that I had to slide. Next one, he just extended a bit further, and it went, raced past me and went for four. And I said, I've never seen anyone hit a ball like that. Like, it was effortless. Then he proceeded in that next session to score 100. Wow. And he didn't hit one ball in the air. Didn't hit one ball in the air. We know what Gilly could do when he goes aerial, but he didn't hit one ball in the air. I said, who is this guy? It was Adam Gilchrist, so <laughs> I got a, I got a pretty early glimpse of him, and I knew he was pretty damn good. It's some pretty big names that you play against. I, I know you're going to try and avoid this, but I'm going to push it till I get an answer, George. If you had to compare yourself in the day now to a modern batsman, who, who whose game were you going down the path of? 
Oh, not because he's scoring runs. I, I, I occupied the crease for long periods of time, didn't hit it many balls in front of the square. I used to get sledged the hell out of it from the Shane Lees and everyone I played against. <laughs> I used to play I used to play the reverse V. So I'd play the one. So you were like an, an early edition Justin Langer type uh, when he was in that early part of his Is that where we're going here? Uh, yeah, like would But it was quite funny. I, 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 I opened up until 19s and... Under 19s, I started playing sort of from three to five, like you'd bat. So that was kind of it. But you got to get runs. But I, I, I loved it. But I, I'd occupy the crease. I could bat for long periods of time if I stayed in. But that's all about that, isn't it? <laughs> so let, let's get to the Wallabies. Obviously, time passes. You, you make your debut as a 21-year-old against the Italians in Brisbane. Have I got that yeah, right? That's correct. Okay, good. I often say to the cricketers, how do you find out? And the the late, great Dean Jones, like you get a phone call and then you get a parcel with your whites there. And, and nowadays, you know, Pat Cummins gets presented by whoever. How, how do you find out you're going to play your first game for the Wallabies? Is it a fax? Is it a phone call? Is it is it a camp? How do you actually find out? So this isn't going back to 94, so it puts things in perspective. We didn't have <laughs> – it seems like it's a, 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 the, the, uh, the ancient times. But yeah. I got a call actually from uh, Peter Slattery. Huh. Slats called me because um, I was I was on the bench to Slats for the first couple of test matches against Ireland, and obviously Slats had been behind Nick Far Jones for many many years, and he captained Queensland. He's such a good halfback, Slats. Incredible, incredible pass. Really dangerous with his running game. Really communicated. Just a just a great guy. Um, and he he informed me that mate, you, you you're going to be starting. Um, this test match and I'm going to be on the bench and if there's anything I can do to help you then let's just let me know it was so so big of slats mm. and and I couldn't believe it I thought he was actually taking having a bit of a joke I was the youngest in the team I was getting I was getting a lot of jokes directed my way within that Wallaby team at that time and I thought this was just another one <laughs> so I didn't take him seriously oh you initially. thought he was taking he the says, no no I'm being serious you thought he was joking yeah 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 I thought I I said, Slats, I don't think so. And, and he said, because he says, mate, you're going to get a call from Bob Dwyer after me. I just wanted to let you know that. And then, fair enough, Bob called me and said, yeah, that's the case. And says, we're going to back you and see how you go. You, you've done well in the sevens this year at Hong Kong. We've seen you training. But now's your chance. Here's an opportunity. We just want to see what you can do at Test Match Rugby. And that was kind of it. That was how I was informed. And then, then, you, then it gets... Um, on the radio, but some people might might not have got the call and they might have heard it on the radio on the news, but that's that's how I found out in 94 before my first test. Slats was the first call. What's it like wandering into the dressing room and then running out onto the ground with, I, I presume, I don't know, George, I presume you're running out with some blokes that you've had yeah. a, a bit of hero worship towards. Of course. Oh, you do, you're feeling that the, the two weeks, or oh, the two tests prior to that was against um, Ireland. And you're doing that. You look in the change room, or you go into the first camp, and you're getting all your kit. You're so excited, and you've got your wallaby kit and your bag, and you're rooming. My first roommate was Damien Smith, and again, so one of my great mates. And you just you can't believe it. These are the guys you've watched on TV, and you may have done some videotape, or you've watched them win a World Cup, and now you're playing with them, and you're in team meetings, sitting down, breaking bread. Yeah, you've got to get up, but you've got to kind of get over that and get into doing what your job is. And oh, I remember the environment was it was a high-performing environment. Like, it was a winning environment. They were champions. Um, they'd won World Cups. They'd beaten South Africa away. They'd beaten South Africa at home coming from behind. They'd beaten the All Blacks. They'd won everything. They were just a, they had a winning mindset. And Bob Dwyer and that team were ahead of their time in terms of how they prepared. Very, very professional, sports scientific. We're doing recovery. We're doing all that kind of stuff. We're doing. We all had sort of individual eating plans from our diet. Look, we, we were sort of 
what is kind of the normal now. That was he was down that path then. Uh, so that was what the beauty of being at the RAS too, because you're pretty. They replicated what if you were to get into the Wallaby team, this is this is how you get to prepare, and it was very much the case. Just everything happens a bit faster because you're playing with the best players in the world. But um, no, that was that was a nice piece, but you had to get over that. I remember getting a bollocking from Phil Kearns in one of the training sessions because I wasn't barking at the forwards enough, wasn't directing them around the field. And he's just, just like, you know, you've got to tell us what to do. George, like you're a halfback. If you if you can't do your job, then we'll find someone else. And I said, oh, okay, right, Kenzie, I'm, you've, 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 no worries, I'll bark at you, don't worry, I'll be, I'll be steering <laughs> you around the field. But it was a good wake-up call was of, of the basics. It was like, do your job. Like, that's what he, I'm meant to be communicating, telling him where to be, this, 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 get into this slot, da-da-da. So then there was a free licence for me to think, okay, they're just another set of forwards. And Kenzie, <laughs> I'm coming after you. <laughs> Back to George in a moment. Next up on the podcast, an athlete whose story you probably haven't heard, but whose story I hope you have the time to hear. Multiple world surfing champion, Tyler Wright. Courtesy of Rip Curl, Tyler is fierce, articulate, expressive, and Tyler is also brutally honest about parts of her life that have been far from easy. The, the really lovely way to put it is that I was designed to be a weapon yep. and I realised I was a human being. Okay. And what that actually... self-aware at 18. <laughs> yeah. And so what that actually means is that I've now lived my life in a way where I've blocked out every emotion. I've copped everything on the chin. I've dealt with everything that I possibly could with the tools that I had at hand. But at the end of the day... I didn't want to keep going. It wasn't that it was too much. It's number four in the world, like going for these crazy things. But my life was, it wasn't really a life. It was in the sense of like, none of it, I didn't really have a choice in it. It was just, this is what you're doing. Like I couldn't go back to school, tried to go back to school, couldn't connect with friends because, you know, the people, my father wouldn't, it's not that he wouldn't allow it. He just, the way he would talk about people, the way he would talk about people my own age and the way he would talk about f- siblings that had friends and, and that would go out and party and say, like, you don't want to end up like them. You don't want to end up like, I'm like, well, they seem pretty cool. I like them. I actually love them. I think they're, mm. they're great. Um, so you end up in this place where you're so isolated, so by yourself, you have zero ability to articulate because you you weren't taught how to express yourself and you weren't taught to have boundaries. And all you were taught to do is just keep copping it on the chin and that this is just what life is. And so by 16, when when I first got on by 18, I'd had enough and I was done. And yeah, that's how it manifested was just, I, I, I didn't know at the time, I didn't even know what any of these things were like depression, anxiety, None of this is talked about. It was talked about at all. I didn't even know what my family talked about now, other than giving each other shit. That is the force that is Tyler Wright. Next up on the podcast, let's get back to George. So I guess th- there's moments in any athlete's career, um, George, which you often talk about on this show, where they burst onto the public consciousness. Like rugby fans are going to know who you are coming up and then they know you when you play for the Wallabies. But at that stage, 
the Wallabies, you know, the, it was an enormous brand. You come up against the Kiwis for the first time and you explode onto the national consciousness out of a tackle. Uh, Wilson's charging along and this little fella with a um, Carl Lewis-style flat top yeah, arrives right. on the scene. That's it. Um, Just solo. Tell me about who it was. Tell me about that moment and... Like, I, I don't know if it's it was, it was not like Warney's ball of the century, but I'm sure all of a sudden people around the trap started to know who you were rather than just diehard rugby fans. Wilson and Smith. Lovely step. Wilson. Yes. Oh, he lost the ball. No try. A tragedy. Unbelievable. I think it was George Gregan got a hand in there. Great run, Wilson. He was over for all money. Who got his hand? Was. It's, it's definitely, it was my fourth test. It was my first test match against the All Blacks. Uh, and it was a good introduction into just like it just goes another level when you play them. I remember everything went up that week because it was a midweek test match. It was a Wednesday night test match. We got together. That was when you couldn't get together much more than, say, four days. I think we got together on like on a Saturday and officially we sort of trained Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, played. So we sort of, it was was like a Friday or Saturday. We, we have, you could have no more than three days preparation back in those amateur days. Um, <clears throat> so the first session we did everything. I remember Dave Wilson, uh, Jason Little, everyone, everyone had just amped up the training intensity uh, and there was a real driving of like standards and a level of this is what we need to do. We can't afford to be sloppy. Everything, you go, okay, this is, this is going to be, it's going to be different. And everyone's talking about playing on instincts, don't think too much, get back, but just get in place, be urgent to be in position. So everything was just gone to that next level and that's how it played out. And they don't go away. No New Zealand team, I don't care in any sport, particularly in rugby, they don't go away. Um, so we got off to a flying start, but then you had Zinzan Brooks, you got, yeah, young Jeff Wilson, you had Sean Fitzpatrick, Frank Bunce, um, Walter Little. Uh, they, had, they had just an incredible team. And they they got back and they were finishing with a bit of a wet sail and and as I said my first roommate Damien Smith he always gives me shit telling me that like he only made one tackle it's true and I said it's <laughs> a good one I said but you missed it I said you missed the tackle Smitty I said so I'm ever in, in, forever grateful for you for not doing your job and you forced me to go a little bit harder and do my job and he kind of laughs but he, he Jeff beat a few people but it was one of those moments and Jeff scored plenty plenty of tries was went on to have a great all black career but you know that was one moment but I swear I've spoken to so many people who are all in that corner yeah. it, it wasn't there, there wasn't 40,000 people in that corner <laughs> but the amount of paper in that corner is quite funny. The commentary is great because you arrive and they, and they, they talk about the tackle and they call you Little George Gregan. I've watched so much rugby in the last three days where they call you Little George Gregan. Uh, there's some specific games I want to ask you about, but tell me about... The All Blacks and the brand is even stronger now than when you played because you were able to beat them. And, you know, I don't think a team's beaten them since the last time you did, which is extraordinary. Like, what do you do like, when the huck is on? What, what do you do? Uh, do, you, do you engage? Do you look away? It looks frightening on TV, which I guess is the idea. Yeah, well, it's, it's actually a challenge. Like, it's a challenge. It's a traditional Maori challenge. Um, I think we learned. There's one time we were a bit obsessed with Greg Smith in '96, 
and he was saying it was an unfair advantage and they use it and so we turned our back on it sort of almost joined David Campisi at Athletic Park because he never sort of did it he just did his own thing and we sort of got in a turned our backs to it in a huddle that'll warm up the New Zealand team the Aussies were jogging around at the other end of the field they just ignored the Harker and that's disrespectful and (laughs) they proceeded to put nearly 50 on us (laughs) And um, I think they spoke about it. Remember the late John Alomi saying, God, they didn't even face up. Like, it was like, and that's kind of it. Like, you had to face up and uh, accept it. And then the whistle blows post that, and it's another game of rugby, but it's a special game. So you you face up to it and you deal with it. Uh, I think everyone is different. Like, the way I dealt with it would be different if you spoke to Nathan Sharp or if you spoke to Lottie Takiri, what they do and what was it personally and emotionally going through them for me it was a chance to yep i'll accept the challenge yeah i'll see marsh i'll look across i'll scan the team yep we, we're gonna we're gonna play you it's gonna kick off um and you'll you'll either receive a long kick or a short whatever it's gonna be game on soon um but it was also a chance for me to rehearse how we're gonna start so if we were kicking off what we're going to be doing, where we're going to be directing, how we're going to put pressure, all that kind of stuff. What's our first line out going to be? Vice versa, if we're receiving a short or a long, what are we going to do? We're we going to set up for an exit. If they've got five back, we're going to play. Like just communicating. So it was a good chance for me to just to, to, to use that time to get ready for when we kick off. It's not just another game of rugby. It's it's a rugby, game of rugby against the All Blacks, but it's a game of rugby. So you've got to be ready for that post the um, Harker. You mentioned Lomu again. We're talking about rugby fans and then sports fans and Jonah Lomu was as a as a viewer was like nothing we'd ever seen he's he's almost like the modern prototype of what we see getting around in the NFL now like an enormous man that just had power and speed again you, you, you must have done two tackles because there's famous vision of you bringing him down <laughs> Lomu he's got Just George to beat here. Have a look. So he just hung on for dear life to Jonah's arm. What was he like to play against? Because he just looked like a, a, a locomotive. He was frightening to play against. He's a beautiful human being. Like a softly spoken, just like a lot of the Polynesian players, just lovely. Um, but they go on the field and they, they're warriors. They're, they're built to play rugby. <laughs> they really are. Um, I experienced Jonah... I made one tackle. I'll tell you a missed tackle on him, which I thought was a perfect tackle. It was Hong Kong 7th before the world really got to know Jonah. We got a taste of him in 1994 in Hong Kong. Um, Gordon Titchens had brought this young 18-year-old kid. I was 21, so I feel like an old dog compared to him. But, like, I was my first 7th, but he was 18. And he was just this – was quite freakish. He was was a bit leaner than, say, the 2000-2001 period. But he was still huge, and he had this incredible ability to run over the top of you in sevens, which he didn't really need to do. He could had a big swerve in and away, had a great turn of pace, and he could change hands and offload. So if you think about playing Jonah in 15s, it's hard. Imagine cutting your team in half, and you've got all this field to cover, and they throw the ball at him, and he's quick, he's athletic, and he can do everything. He was a one-man wrecking ball. And we played. We got to the final that year. I remember we were talking about this Jonah Lomu. Let's cut off. Let's cut off his time and space. And all of a sudden, the first time it goes out wide, he's got time and space. And I'm going, oh hell! I've got to go across and try and <laughs> make this cover tackle. So I go underneath, get underneath his fend. 
I get his leg, I chop him really hard with my left shoulder, I squeeze his legs together. I've done everything. Like if you're talking about the, I've got him. He's going to timber. I was thinking he's going to fall like a tree. And then bang, this, I'm just held onto this massive boot in my hand, like a size 13 Adidas boot. He's running down with this white, like he's white, he's got his AB7 sock and it's white underneath with one boot. I'm going, this is going to be a long day. <laughs> this is going to be a long day because I could have made a better tackle than that. And he still got out of it. And um, that was, that was I think everyone in the world's got stories like that against Jonah. That was me missing a side on tackle. So yeah. he had to go a bit high, try and get under his fend. And then for me, because I'm small, it's almost like you jump like a lion jumping on a, <laughs> like on a big bull or something and then just trying to drag him down and then use his body weight and then, and then, that's how I had I had some success doing that, and then the other way was just to try and not let him wind up. It's just to reduce his time and space, and then chop him. Because once he got going, he was unstoppable. He really was. He was he was he was Jonah Lomu. There's been nothing like him. There's there's been glimpses of it, but Jonah was Jonah was just unique. It's a great description you use because when I looked at your successful tackle, you you look like a, a lion cub trying to bring down a rhinoceros. Like that, that was like you were just so small on him. We'll get we'll get back to the kiwis. Um, I'd love to frame this in the in the conversation of, of winning and losing, which is part of sport. Um, when you win the World Cup in 1999, I was watching it this morning, but I, I didn't realise till I went back and looked at it. Um, it came down to extra time in semi. the semi against South Africa. Um, and I wrote this down because Yanni De Beer scored a penalty to send it extra time. Amazing kick when I look back mm. at it. Hits it. He's got it. A sensational kick. And Yanni De Beer's nerve held. And we go into extra time. What's the key to success as a team? When, when it's literally do or die in in the second biggest stage there is in rugby, you, you're on the way to a final, it's going to extra time because it's all square. What do you learn about yourself and a team in a situation like that, Georgie? Yeah, oh, I think it's calm. I think that team was very, very calm. We'd built up over a number of years and we'd had <clears throat> our fair share of failures and, and bad failures. I remember we got smashed in Pretoria by South Africa, a lot of that team. Um, we'd lost a big game against the Springboks to determine the Tri-Nations at that stage in Johannesburg. Um, yeah, we'd beaten the All Blacks. We'd, we'd, we'd shown signs because we beat the All Blacks 3-0 in 1998. Um, they got us at Auckland and then we came back and beat them in Sydney. Um, so we, we were building towards, you know, okay, give give us another chance to, to win a, a, a big moment and play in a big contest and you can't get any bigger than a semi-final extra time. We didn't want to go to extra time. We thank Owen Finnegan to this day for those, those extra 20 minutes of play because he, <laughs> he, rather than put his hands away from the fruit, he, he pushed it, he pushed the envelope a little bit and then De Beer made a great kick under pressure. But you kind of had a sense it's going to potentially go down to the wire. It's going deep. And the box don't give up. Up until that stage, they hadn't lost the World Cup game because obviously they won the 95 World Cup undefeated. And I, think, I remember it's been, it was probably a bit of a motivator for us. I think a few of the fans had this, you know, we're 100%, we never lose in World Cups. And so that was a day to change history. They, <clears throat> and we, we, did, we got them in extra time. But it took... It took something extraordinary. Drop goal from Larkham. Up it goes. Could you believe it? Larkham has to be a beer. But it took 
calmness and saying, okay, we're here. We didn't, we, we were so close to not being in extra time. We're in extra time. What are we going to do? What's the kick? What are we, we played really well that day. We were, probably should have scored close to two tries um, in that game, but they just scrambled so well. I nearly went over on the line. It was like it was so close. We were pushing, but they were just hung on because uh, they're just, a, that's South Africa in all sports. Um, so we just, we knew we just had to be patient. We knew we'd get a chance and we got to a point in that, which was amazing. Steve Lycombe, there's no way we called field goal, um, but he was just on the run, felt an opportunity, snapped it whilst he was on the run, this big roping sort of Adam Scott draw, which went forever. Like it sounded like a cannon, just went through, and that was like a moment. I think everyone looked and was going, does that Steve Lycombe just kick that? And then we all got pretty excited, but there's still time to play. I think that's what you got to think. People often forget. Mm. You might kick that, but there's still two or three minutes. There's no reason that the box who just strong mindset aren't thinking, well, we're going to go to double extra time. If we get the ball back, we'll, just, we'll, we'll level it or we'll try and score. But it may have been that kind of a day. But, no, it, it brings it brings those qualities out of the team to be calm and then stay patient, trust what you're doing, and when it comes, strike. And I think that's what we learned in that, with that group. And we were, we were a very calm um, and determined group of men by that stage. And I think those losses along the way prior to that really helped us. And then yeah, when we got to the final, yeah, we were, we were hardened. We was, there was just no way, not, not sounding arrogant, there was no way anyone was going to stop us on, on that day with that group. It was just wasn't going to happen. So you, you beat France convincingly 35 to 12 in front of nearly 73,000 people in Wales. Is it everything it's cracked up to be, the years of work, the wins, the losses to, to be the champions of the world? What, what's the yeah. emotion when the, when the game's done? It's relief. That's my experience, just relief. Like, you're just going, we've done it. Like, I can't believe it. Like, we've actually done it. Like, you've set the goal. Everyone would have set that goal. There's lots of teams set their goal. And, and you know, it's a chart, base camp, whatever. There's going to be some steps. And the steps don't always go. <laughs> Life's not linear. Sport's not linear. There's some steps which aren't going forward, but you've got to correct those and then move forward. Um, and so when you get there, it's like, wow, we've done it. We've actually done it. And you just look around, there's great relief, there's great joy, you know. I think, I'm not sure if it was Kef, who probably, Kef was always pretty close to me when we had those big moments, so it's probably pretty close to Kef, and you had a big, big, and then then you just you just enjoy it together. And then the special time is obviously going round, you get awarded the trophy, but you will go round slowly and you, you soak up the lap, you see your family, you see your friends, you see your supporters, but the extra special stuff is when you get in the change room. That's the stuff which, and I know it's probably a bugbear where we do a bit of commentary in sport and we get cameras going in there. There's a part of that which, uh, like you can, there's a part of that which is just, that's a sacred place. And um, you just, you'll, you'll never forget that. And just great moments together with just not the playing group, but everyone. Everyone contributes to that from the coaches to the management to the liaison, the jurors, whatever. Everyone's part of it. And it's just nice to take some time, soak it up. Like we were drinking. Drinking lots of beers, obviously, out of the cup. Someone brought like a 91 um, 
was it Buddha? I think Buddha brought a 91 um, Grange, which we drank out of <laughs> out of our, our electrolyte cups. Like we weren't too fancy. There was no decantering going on, <laughs> but it was just good fun. And, you know, you, you, you soak up the time. I, I'm always, always pretty slow coming out of the change room. I just like to take take those moments. You know, you have a bath in – they have the baths. They do that well in the Northern Hemisphere. They have a bath sitting in there just, just soaking it all in and just enjoying it. Because um, as soon as you leave that change room, it's done. Well, that moment's done. You go, you go, go see your family. You go to the hotel. You're meant to have something, a private party organised by Kaif and the Double Dirties, which never happened because everyone in Carter found out where we were going. So <laughs> it was no <laughs> private party. So you know what I mean? That change room piece is very it's special. I and mean, I've heard it with the cricketers, like when they sing this under the Southern Cross, if they're doing it, it's like that's that's the stuff you remember as a player and a playing group because you work so hard for those moments because you, you, you leave that sacred place and then, yeah, you'd sit, you're moving on to the next stage. That's the end of part A, part B. Lots to like in part B. Don't be missing it.